Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. Hey everyone, and welcome to the MCU Lorecast. I'm Captain Shanko. And I'm Psych88. Today, we're going back to the future? <laughs> or... Sort of. To the days of future past. Yeah, that's that's a mouthful. But it's catchy. It sure is. And you know what else is kind of crazy is this is happening in the distant future of 2023. The distant... Oof dystopian future and while we may be living in a dystopia we certainly aren't facing (laughs) the insanity the x-men are facing in this one so buckle up right like yeah i mean we are certainly dystopian and no one's really like figured that one out but none of us are in a uh, survival for uh basic well sort of Uh, anyway the point is the world doesn't exactly go according to plan for the X universe for anybody, human or mutant. Before we get too much into this, though, uh, Genesis should go ahead and remind us all real quick that... If you're looking for a spoiler-free zone, sorry, lovelies, you are in the wrong place. Thank you, Jen. Yeah, so this is the distant dystopian 2023. (laughs) Dead. Let that one sink in. I mean, I guess 2023 was reasonably far off when this movie came out, but it's not so far off these days. And these crazy looking robots called Sentinels are hunting down and killing all mutants that they come across while also targeting anyone that carries the X gene. So anyone with the genetic potential to produce uh, mutants in their lines. So... They're basically eradicating all of mutant kind, uh, starting from the DNA. And a good chunk of humanity overall. Things aren't good. There's lots of stuff on fire. Uh, They're basically, well, not even basically, they are fighting for their lives. And there's a small group of survivors, consists of 
some of our core X-Men, Kitty, Colossus, Blink, Warpath, Bishop, Iceman, and Sunspot. And the way that they are operating in this future is that they go back in time. Kitty has this new ability that we're going <laughs> to we're going to talk about later to send someone's consciousness back into their younger body. So every time the Sentinels find them, she's sending Bishop back into his younger body in order to warn them of the attack so that they are never there whenever the attack would occur. They, they've simply moved to a, a different location, and it buys them plenty of time. And they are getting close, and they're running down to the wire, and this is not completely sustainable. Right, because in order to do it, you gotta buy time for that bishop who's now back in time to convince it, or not just convince, but get everyone to move and change history actively. And you're in the middle of a sentinel attack. So everyone else is dying to protect Kitty and Bishop. And oh boy, have these sentinels gotten an upgrade and are very creative in how they kill mutants. Yes. We get more of uh we get more of like Iceman's ice form, which was desperately needed in the other three X-Men movies. And our opening scene literally gets his head taken off and then stomped into slush. So yeah, it's a great future. Yeah, things are certainly looking grim. And they pick their final location in this huge temple and they are, you know, reunited with some of our more senior members of the X-Men, Storm, Wolverine, Professor X, and Magneto, who is now fighting alongside the X-Men. You know, they've reconciled in their old age. And... Very old age. Yes, extremely. And the, you know, they end up explaining how the Sentinels came to be. They were designed by Trask, who used the uh, DNA of Raven Darkholm Mystique to create these new super adaptable sentinels that could adapt to any kind of attack or, you know, physical need in order to eliminate their targets. And that made them super efficient at getting rid of our mutant friends. So, yeah, they they start coming up with a plan, right? Um, go back to 1973 and stop the creation of and the implementation of the Sentinel program, which is Trask's death at the hands of Mystique. Mm -hmm. it, it set off, a, he got martyred in that moment and set off a reaction of fear uh, against mutants and... Thus, the Sentinel program was put into put into effect in order to get rid of the dangerous mutants. So they think, well, hey, um, Xavier, you were in 1973, last we all checked, but Kitty's like, it would break your mind. I can't send someone that far. So who do we have who can heal? Which I have to say, for comic book science, that has got to be the most... BS thing I have ever heard about how his mind can heal from this when he has freaking amnesia from being shot in the head 
by an adamantium bullet. But you can't heal that. But I digress. I digress. Our hero in this time of our need is none other than my all-time favorite character, Wolverine. (laughs) Yeah, so he wakes up in 1973 in yet another gratuitous Hugh Jackman Wolverine scene. Even more gratuitous. He is naked. (laughs) Very naked. And these gangsters, you know, barge through the door and says, you know, you're supposed to be protecting the boss's daughter, not sleeping with her. I love his defense. No, no, that's that was me. Well, I mean, it was, but like 20 minutes ago, that was me. And now it's not me. So can we all just like move along here? Like that argument totally holds up. So, you know. Some gratuitous need to shoot him, and he pops the claws, and he realizes, oh, right, it's 1973, and I apparently don't have the claws yet. It's the bone claws. Yeah, and they have not really upgraded those since Wolverine Origins. Uh, Gross. I hate the bone claws. Anyway, Xavier warned Logan before Kitty brain-shocked him into his younger body, that the Charles in 1973 is not the man he knows now. He is denying his power, actively repressing it, in order to walk, because somehow his telepathic powers are linked to his ability to utilize his legs, because telepathy totally nullifies the effects of, I don't know, being shot in the spine. Yeah, right. So in about a 20 minute difference, we have two BS comic book science ever uttered in an X-Men movie. Yeah, I'm not. The reason for McAvoy to not have to be in a wheelchair the whole movie is irritating and annoying and, you know, a little demeaning overall like dude you playing xavier get in the chair yeah but we needed drama we needed the drama yeah he is basically not even basically he is a junkie we see him just you know let's tie off the arm give myself my medicine yeah it's an intense xavier for sure and you know he he throws one of logan's one-liners straight back in his face but misquotes it because this is the X-Men and we forget what happened in prior films. No, 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 that was it. You know, it was, or, uh, yeah, it was something similar at least. And it was, it's the one F-bomb for a PG-13, which was creative. And then he gets it thrown almost right back at him from Wolverine of like, I'm not here to take your attitude right now man up deal with your stuff and let's go Mm, yeah and uh we get nicholas holt just (laughs) just nicholas holt he's also partaking in in the normal juju juice unless he gets hit in the face a couple of times (laughs) yeah i want to know how that works i guess locational trauma causes the serum to wear off or just for effect you know starting the transformation in the middle of the face was i don't know interesting it's it definitely shows up really fast well the only thing that makes xavier consider logan's 
craziness and what he's hearing is the fact that he really wants to reunite with Raven. And in order to do that, Logan says, well, you know, I know this kid who can help us break into the Pentagon because they need young Nito. Yeah, right. Because the other part of this plan hinges on getting Magneto on board as well. Yeah, because that's not a crazy plan at all. No. But hey, we had, honestly, the other really cool Quicksilver. Yeah, so I actually, I wanted to, I do want to talk about this scene when he's breaking in, when they're breaking into the Pentagon to get out Magneto. I loved the time in a bottle Quicksilver sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought that that was a perfect utilization of Quicksilver. It was quirky. It was fun. It was goofy. I loved watching him sort out the physics of everything, and it was very much in character and in his head, and then when it all comes back into regular time and you just see all the carnage going off, that was very well done and an awesome Quicksilver. I think our Quicksilver in other MCU films could learn a thing or two about deflecting bullets. Oh. (laughs) Oh, that... Oh, that's just... I'm sorry. Look, he was contractually obligated to die, okay? Like... I'm still allowed to hate it. Of course, but you don't have to, like, just, you know, drop a particular truth bomb that hard. It's all I know how to do. What I would have liked is they didn't continue to, like, repeat the time in a bottle sequences for Quicksilver as the other movies continued, but... We're not on those movies. We're on this one. We are on getting Magneto out of the Pentagon. So, away we go. I do love that bit in the elevator when uh, Quicksilver asks, so what can you do? And Magneto goes, I can move metal with my mind. And he goes, my mom knew a guy that could do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because it hadn't been retconned yet in the comics that Quicksilver and Wanda aren't his children. But I digress, where we've now gotten Magneto out of the Pentagon in usual fashion, and away we go to Paris, because guess who is making an appearance at the Paris Peace Accords for the end of the Vietnam War? Peter Dinklage. (laughs) Right. Yep. When Peter Dinklage, playing Trask, has come to the Chinese... And the Vietnamese and the Russians to be like, hey, you guys, so my guys aren't going to listen to me, but maybe you'll listen to me. We've got a bigger threat, and all I want is your money to build these giant death robots. How about it? And then in showing off the sensor tech to determine mutants, it starts going off, saying, oh, there's a mutant nearby. And it turns out that... One Mystique has managed to take out one of the generals and replace him and is sitting right at the table waiting for her chance to kill Trask. I do so love how she took out the general. It was ma- it was masterful. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, Jennifer Lawrence does an incredible job capturing the very sexy, suave, incredible, incredibly in control of her power Mystique. And watching her take over and kind of give the shock factor as well in that scene was amazing. He's trying to smooth talk her because he thinks she's beautiful as, you know, blonde 
Jennifer Lawrence speaking perfect Vietnamese. And and then she, you know, magically turns blue and goes, what, you don't think I look pretty like this? I love it. I love it. And I have to say, her her mastery of taking down people is, it's very fluid, it's very quick, it's very, uh, I, I hit, like, one, two points, and you stay down. We got the same thing when she took on a whole, like, little squad of guys when she rescued some privates from being tested on by Trask Industries, including a guest appearance by Havoc in that scene. And she just wipes the floor with all these guys with basically her feet. Yeah, that's the most impressive part for sure. She does not skip leg day. No, she does not. Nor does she miss stretching, like, at all, because she's just, like, all over the place. But anyway, Trask has identified, you know, Mystique as a mutant in the room, and everyone's like, oh my god, there's a mutant, and everyone's starting to freak out. And in the normal timeline that produces the horrific future, this is where she kills him. But we have get some nice, timely intervention by our quad of guys who stop her from killing Trask, and he escapes. And then the train gets derailed hard. Yeah, because our guy, Wolvie, takes a nice little trip when things start getting rocky, and he forgets what the mission is. No, it's not that he forgets what the mission is. So his connection between the his past self and his future self gets a little discombobulated when he sees one young William Stryker on the Trask task force there. Yeah, he's he's not right in the head and Xavier tells him that someone gave him bad acid. Yeah, cuz he's trying cuz Xavier at that moment isn't talking to the Wolverine that had brought him there. He's talking to the actual 1973 Wolverine who has been hijacked into this whole thing like you gotta like the present 1973 like world state mind or whatever of wolverine has been suppressed or shunted off somewhere so that the 2023 wolverine can walk around in the body and do stuff and affect time Mm -hmm. so when when that connection gets disrupted 1973 wolverine comes back and is like Last place I was, I was in a bed with a naked girl. Where am I? Yeah, he's he's confused. And meanwhile, Eric has decided that in order to change the future where all of this bad stuff happens, that Mystique needs to die. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's a brilliant plan, buddy. Yeah. So he uses a bullet. And, like, a heat-seeking missile as she's jumping out of the window uses it to take her out. He he shoots her through the leg. And they end up getting a sample of Raven's DNA off of that little drop of blood that was left on the concrete. Um, Meanwhile, too, Beast is hairy, blue, and angry, and on television. He's not the only one. So Mystique makes that dive out, she takes the shot in the leg... And she is in her natural state, naked, blue. And then in front of all these cameras, there for the peace accords, she turns into a person who was standing at the barricade. And boom, mutants. Like, 
you want to set off the world, she did it in spectacular fashion. And then out floats Magneto looking to finish the job. And Hank cops down to take him out and he bashes Magneto's head at the bottom of a fountain for a little while, which was, I thought it was a really good fight. It's, it was, you know, it utilized a lot of camera shakiness to get the point. So, unfortunately, because Mystique's blood was present at the time of the Nexus event, as we're going to call it, it doesn't change the future. The They would have had enough material to make the future Sentinels as they are, and so they are. the future is still very much in a lot of trouble. On top of that, because Wolverine got disrupted, in the process, he, he popped off his claws and cut Kitty. So now Kitty's bleeding, basically to death slowly, before getting him back under control. Yeah, so she's barely holding on and has to hold out long enough for Wolverine to sort out the future because this is this is their last chance. They can't keep running and they're kind of putting all of their chips on the table for this one because they don't really have another choice. Right, because if Kitty loses connection with Wolverine right here. Anything he has done becomes set. And if it's not exactly what they needed, everything could become a lot worse and stay the same. Also, because she's connected, she can't just use Bishop to shunt back and go, hey, we need to move locations again. This is their last stand. There is nowhere else to go. There are no more holes to hide in. It's fight till you die and hope that we everything gets like, reset or not. They end up having to backtrack to Washington, D.C. in order to stop Raven from officially assassinating Trask because now this future has differed from the past to where the assassination attempt takes place much later down the timeline. And they have this big ceremony where a very creepy Nixon kind of lookalike unveils the sentinels um i did love the the uh tapes reference that that was good yes i will say the weak point in this movie was the cgi because those sentinels looked awful like they looked computer programmed they they didn't have uh, it just looked there was a missing layer of polish that was needed on those sentinel models yeah they were just a little bit too shiny yeah. Also, the CGI for when Magneto puts the metal into them, because Trask had bragged that these Sentinels were all made out of a, a non-metal polymers and spacecraft era of whatevers. And so Magneto tracked down where they were making them, hid onto the train, and then used railroad lines to kind of embody every Sentinel with metal and basically take over them for them and we get another classic magneto scene where he picks up something that has metal in it that is just incomparably huge for dramatic effect yeah this time it's a baseball field which i'm just like i get it he needed he needed a fortress basically a round fortress and so he took a baseball field stadium picks it up and places it around the white house it's effective it's showy, but it's also just like, if you have that much power, I don't know. I just, like, 
there's a power imbalance here of what you should be able to be doing and if you're able if you're capable of that why aren't you better or or something i don't know you know but you know what i mean yeah he's been very inconsistent in his power scaling i think as far as the x-men go he's one of those that every director has had a different scale that they took him to i think this one was a, a little bit crazy considering in first class you know xavier says you know you should make that satellite turn and face us and that in it's, it's a very large satellite but it in no way is a baseball stadium right and he struggles with that yeah so i that's where i have a little bit of a hard time believing it i fully believe that Ian McKellen, older Magneto, would have the power to lift that baseball stadium. That's not even in question. He lifted that bridge in Last Stand. Precisely. Yep. So, it, it, yeah, the power scaling's a little bit off, but it, that's that's a gripe. It's a it's a nitpick, at, I guess. And it and it it is effective, and it is showboaty, and it and it proves that he is powerful, and that people should listen to the words he's saying because he drops that stadium, and then. Uh, surprise, those sentinels are not so metal-free as you claim. <laughs> so they turn and turn their guns on, on the people while Magneto gives a speech about, you know, mutants are here and we will not go down quietly. Fassbender definitely captures that charisma. Like, there's a scene much earlier in the movie where Xavier accuses Eric of getting into Mystique's head and he just... Magneto kind of just like rolls back with, that's not my power, but it is like, yes, he's got magnetism, right? But he's also got a magnetic personality. He has that leadership, that almost cult-like charisma that draws people to him. And Fassbender nails it in that speech. He definitely brings a, a different intensity to the younger Magneto and does a very good job. And I think also it should be noted too that he had a very large role to fill because he had to play the younger version of Ian McKellen's Magneto. That's big shoes to fill. Indeed. Back to the events at hand. During all of these events, the president is in a bunker underneath underneath the White House, but it's made of metal. So <laughs> Magneto just yanks that thing straight out of the ground <laughs> and Raven disguises herself as Nixon and offers herself in order to save the real Nixon and and end the conflict. Yes, so so she pops out, she transforms into herself and into her natural state and she shoots Magneto, the bullet catching him just on the outside of the neck, but it's enough to drop him and his concentration on the sentinels and everything. And so now the world has seen, they have seen a mutant terrorist come in, almost kill the president, and another mutant stepping up and saving the president, even if it is Nixon. That says a lot, and all the goodwill that can come from that. However, Mystique still wants to kill Trask. That is a problem. And it takes Xavier finally being like, look, I've I've tried to control you our whole lives together. For that, I apologize. And I'm not going to try to control you anymore. Your life is your own. Do what you want. 
and he leaves it to her, and she manages to not shoot Trask. Drops the gun, walks away. And in that moment, boom, future is reset. Yeah, and while she's making her exit, she yanks the helmet off of Magneto and said, and says, you know, he's all yours. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, you know, Charles kind of needed the help because he was trapped under one of the stadium, like, I-beams or whatever that had fallen on him. Mm-hmm. And he kind of needed Magneto's help. Well, Magneto wasn't going to do that himself. So Xavier, like, hijacks him for a second and has his pick it up and Hank gets him out of there. They they let Magneto go. Mm-hmm. Like, no one's going to hold on to him uh, and all the mutants escape. but. The goodwill is enough to cancel Trask's program, and he gets his own good karma for uh, selling military secrets. Because, hey, guess what? You really shouldn't go to the Chinese and Russians in the middle of the Cold War to um, sell them other, you know, sell them your plans that you just tried to sell to Congress. That's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Magneto laced some lovely rebar through our through our guy Wolverine and yeeted him into the harbor. I have to say that was my favorite scene. <laughs> <laughs> the yeeting, the yeeting of Wolverine, Ye- yeeting him into the freaking Potomac. Like I loved it. However, first he gets recovered, and secondly, secondly, we all know that drowning is a, an effective weapon against a healing factor. Yet. Somehow he survives being on the bottom of the freaking Potomac for like an hour or two. Superhero science! That's not even superhero science. Wolverine convenience plot armor science! Yes, freaking plot armor is what it is. Well, the, you know, one of the last bits is it's apparently Stryker and the rest of whatever team is left recovering him, only it's revealed in the last two seconds that it's not Stryker, it's Mystique, pretending to be Stryker, who get him out of it. I don't know how she got from the White House, out of the rubble and everything, all the way to the Potomac so quickly, gathered up a team, and found him, and what was the purpose of that? Like, all the way up until that reveal, it's like, oh, okay, so now Stryker gets a hold of Wolverine, and we start the whole process of turning him into the adamantium animal that we all know. And yet it's not. And so what was the point? Like, what's the setup here? And I don't have a good answer to that. Yeah, and then I'm curious, too, because this leaves a massive plot hole if it was Mystique that saved him when he wakes up again in 2023. Does he have the bone claws? Uh, do you really want to know? No. Okay. <laughs> he can he, he can leave the claws in. We've already seen way too many scenes of Logan waking up in bed. <sighs> well, this one was very nice. And honestly, it was one of the things that n- needed for the X-Men movies to continue. So our last bit is the future or the present or whatever. It's 2023 again. Wolverine wakes up. And he is dumbfounded by what he is seeing, and it's the school, and it's open, and there are students everywhere, and all of his old friends are alive. You, we even have a quick cameo of, I believe, uh, Grammar as Beast coming through, and you know, telling him that he's running late to his class. 
And, you know, we see even uh, Gene and Scott back, which was nice. I loved that visor. Uh, I would kill to have that visor. It was a good one. It was a good one, albeit a brief appearance. Yes. And then Xavier and him have this conversation. Wolverine's like, yeah, so I'm supposed to be teaching history, right? So I might need a refresher after 1973. And that's when Xavier realizes that the Wolverine before him is the Wolverine that had put him on the path to find hope again and be Xavier, the mutant telepath. And so it ends on a very high note. I loved the note this ends on, which is one of the reasons why I like the movie so much, even with the fact that it's Wolverine and the X-Men. I don't really have anything else to say about the movie. We just have other stuff to discuss. So how about we head into the mid-break, yeah? Sure. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. All right, welcome to the mid-break. Again, thank you for being a part of the MCU Lorecast. We really appreciate it. Uh, If you'd like to help us out financially, we have a Patreon. The link for that will be in the description. And there are several tiers that you can sign up for. A couple of them get you on the show at the end of the month. We are more than likely not having a Patreon chat this month, which is unfortunate because we really do like talking to you guys and having those moments with you all. If you guys can't support us financially, though, you can always drop us a review on Apple or rating on Spotify. Five-star reviews will get read out on the show. Sadly, we don't have a new one at this time. Come on, guys. We need some love. Right. And if you're just feeling like you want to talk to us, you can always hit us up on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, or the Robot Radio Discord, where we have a channel specifically for the show. A link for the Discord will also be in the show description. And speaking of Robots Radio, tell us about the fight space, Shanko. Absolutely. So the fight space is my other show that I have here on the Robots Radio Network. It's a show where we talk about the martial arts community and the world of combat sports at large. I have a really great time interviewing everyone from wrestling fanatics through to world champion athletes. And it's been amazing. Super amazing. So if you're into combat sports, if you like UFC, stuff like that, definitely think about joining me on the Fight Space. You can find me on the Robots Radio Discord as well as across social media as the Fight Space or the Fight Space one on Twitter. And you've got another show as well. Yes, I have the Mass Effect Blue Shift tabletop RPG podcast. We play Citadel security agents solving crimes on Citadel. I play dashing human agent Jack Parizo. We have a grand old time. We've got uh, an episode dropping here in a little while on the first Friday of the month. And yeah, that's it. So how about how about heading out to talk about some characters in, in real world lore? Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right. So I've got a handful of characters for you guys. And we'll go through it pretty quick. So up first, we have Eric Gitter, a.k.a. Inc., He was introduced in Young X-Men number one, April 2008, by Mark Gungenheim and Yannick Paquette. This character was one of the military privates saved uh, by Mystique in Vietnam at the beginning of the movie. He was the guy with all the tattoos. Uh, In the comics, he is human. The tattoo artist is the mutant, and he has the ability to gift people powers through the tattoos. During that whole X-Men, young X-Men arc, he gets a tattoo of the Phoenix Force over his right eye that puts him into a coma after he used it to revive a teammate. Currently, he has since recovered and removed that particular tattoo. Yeah, that's probably a smart move. Right? Yeah, you don't want to be connected to even a fraction of that cosmic force. It's all speculated as to why he went into a coma and all of that, but anyway. Uh, he's an interesting character used very quickly and then dropped off. So it's interesting to see him brought to the movie here, especially for a setting like Vietnam and he's supposed to be a, a military private and all that because he's got tattoos on his face and whatnot. And I mean, military is very strict about that. Even, even I think with a draft at the time, they still would have been like, okay, uh, no, because they're all about uniformity. All right. Uh, next, we have uh, James Proudstar, a.k.a. Warpath, introduced in New Mutants, Volume 1, Number 16, June 1984, by Chris Claremont and Sal Busima. Originally, this character wanted Xavier dead for the death of his brother, John, a.k.a. Thunderbird, who had died in the second issue of the Uncanny X-Men. Warpath would go on to become one of the gruff, no-nonsense killers on the X-Teams over time, including a significant stint on X-Force in the mid-2000s. And his character's pretty self-explanatory, and he's got heightened senses, super strength. Um, He's supposed to be a a bit taller in the comics than what the movie presented, but other than that, they nailed the look, they nailed the fight style. Overall, it was really good. Uh, I would say the whole future team overall was a really good, like, from comic to to movie was really done really well. High praise. Yeah. I mean, I'm, an X-Men movie's got to get something right every once in a while, right? <laughs> they have to, they've got to throw out one shiny. Indeed. Okay, so next we've got Roberto da Costa, a.k.a. Sunspot. Introduced in The New Mutants number 4 in September 1982 by Chris Claremont and Bob McLeod. The New Mutants were the second generation of teenage mutants to join the school after the original team had grown up and, well, half of them got captured by Krakoa and moved on and all the other stuff, right? Sunspot, 
here, he's had several high-profile positions within the X-Universe, including the title of Black King in the Hellfire Club, and he was a member of the Avengers after the events of AVX, which, like, I both love that, like, crossover and loathe that crossover. Next, we have uh, Clarice Ferguson, a.k.a. Blink. She was introduced in The Uncanny X-Men number 317 in October 1994 by Scott Lobdell and Joe Madura. In the 616 universe, the, the universe that all, most of our stories come from, this character died within a month of their introduction and was only brought back in 2009. Most characterization of this character goes to the Age of Apocalypse version who joined the Exiles team after the end of that universe, along with that universe's Sabretooth. Um, it is a little unclear right now what the uh, 616 version is up to. She did a stint as a villain for a little while, and then kind of got a redemption arc and was brought back to the X-Men. But as what for, for what she's doing right now in the current events, it's a little unclear. Next, we've got Bishop. Introduced in The Uncanny X-Men number 282 in November 1991 by Wills Portacio and John Byrne. He's a time traveler from 80 years in our future, and he has seen a world turn into a prison, much like the world that was set up in this movie here. He also goes back in time to prevent a traitor within the X-Men from destroying them. Uh, he succeeds and is also around for the events of the Age of Apocalypse, and other noteworthy events through the 90s and 2000s. He serves as a team leader and hero for decades, until the Mutant Messiah trilogy, whereupon he becomes a traitor and attempted baby murderer seemingly out of nowhere. I'm not kidding. What they did to him in the comics is, is tantamount to a war crime, I would say, because that assassination was hard. Baby murderer? Yes. Yes. So in the Mutant Messiah Complex trilogy, we have M-Day happen, right? No more mutants. Wanda strips mut uh, mutant kind down to 10% of its numbers and no new mutant births. None. And then we get one. And Bishop views that as the Kickstarter to his uh to his real his future and so he needs to kill this baby to prevent it from happening in the process the man basically becomes his own the snake eating of itself orboro orboro right he's the one who starts making the world bad as he chases cable and the baby through time it's it is awful what they do to him. And the way they try to retcon it out years after the fact is still just, I don't know, dumb. They they blame it on outside influences. Sounds like excuses to me. Yes, yes. It's what happens when you take a character, you shove it through a grinder real quick and realize, oh, we weren't supposed to do that. Whoops. Like, that is what Bishop is right now, is a big whoops. Which is a shame, because he's awesome up until that moment. Last, we have Bolivar Trask. Introduced in The X-Men number 14 
November 1965 by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. I actually haven't said those names in a while. He is the creator of the Sentinels, uh, but Comic Trask uh, does not have dwarfism. After creating the murderous robots, he learns from the errors of his hate and dies in an attempt to, to destroy the Sentinels and the factory that was producing them. Being the creator of the Sentinels, he is credited with the highest death count of mutants at 16,521,618. Jeez. Yeah, he he gets a nice step up there, you know, with Stalin and Hitler and a couple other genocidal madmen. The only redeeming quality this guy has is he tried to stop it before it got bad and died for it. So when Mystique is trying to kill this guy, you if you know, you're like, you're somewhat rooting for her to do it because, because man... <laughs> Yeah, he's not a good dude. He's not a good dude. Yeah. And I have, like, serious props to Dinklage. The man captures uh, Trask's own arrogance and charisma in and total self-belief in this is the way to do this. That mutant kind needs to die so that we all can survive. And he, he just, he lacks the foresight to see that that future not only is not sustainable, but will be actively hurting everybody else. No, I liked Peter Dinklage in this role. I, I completely agree with you. I think he was very charismatic, but also very, uh, I think he, he made the role his own and, and brought his own, own, his own vibe, I guess. Because, you know, Peter Dinklage always, I think he always carries a part of himself into his roles. Yeah, I, I would say so. Okay, so now, the last bit, I swear, and then I'm done. We actually have a comic that this was adapted from. And and I mean that truthfully. This was a very heavy adaptation, but it isn't like X2 where uh, it's somewhat based on the events of God Loves, Man Kills, or like Logan, which was, it, it shares the, you know, dying Logan theme but it's really also the self-insert of x23's origin this is a fairly it's still a fairly bad adaptation but it is an adaptation this was first published between january and february 1981 uh for issues 141 and 142 of the uncanny x-men and was completed by chris claremont john byrne and terry austin in the comic the main character is an adult Kitty Pride who has her mind sent back in time to her younger self by Rachel Summers, the daughter of Cyclops and Jean Grey, who was also a telepath and telekinetic. And she is sent back in time to stop the assassination of John Senator John Kelly and the subsequent deaths of Xavier and McTaggart by Mystique's new brotherhood. Also, while the X-Men of that time are fighting to stop the assassination, the future X-Men are dying to protect Summers and Pride. So you have a lot of the same elements happening. You've got Mystique involved somehow. You've got an assassination that you're trying to stop. Just they've kind of swapped out some of the characters and then they made it all reliant on Wolverine. Yeah, and it's not, it wasn't necessary. 
they they just really like him. So they said, you know what? He's the guy. And they gave Kitty the powers that she's never had before. Yeah, like, I think they, like, tried to make it seem like it's related to her phasing ability. So she's phasing your mind back in time or, or some bollocks. I don't know. Point is, here we have another story that's sort of... The main character is a is a young woman going back in time to do something important, and we get it uh, an old white man again, <laughs> a hairy white man. Congratulations! My favorite hairy Canadian. Yeah, like I get some of it. They they had a unique opportunity where several of the cast of the original three X Men movies were still within an age range to still play their characters without having to do a whole lot of, like, storytelling. And you have a whole new young bunch. But you set it so far back that you can't send, like, Kitty Pride back in time. That'd only be, what, a decade? Two? Yeah, and they'd be sending her back into her baby body. That's not helpful. Right. 1973, she wasn't even... Her, her parents weren't even adults. So, right. It's... They they painted themselves kind of in a corner of, well, we can't use the character from the comic because cause when the comic was made, like it was made, like I said, in the 80s, right? And it was set 40 years in the future. But by then, right, you've got Kitty in her teens and you've got Kitty in her late 40s, 50s, and you're sending that Kate Pride back in time. Here, we've got... Apparently, the world goes to hell pretty quickly after the events of The Last Stand, I would say within a decade. And you've got all this stuff happening with the first class set in the 60s. And this is where I kind of feel like Singer and company started utilizing these uh, other X-Men movies to be like set period pieces. Because, oh, here's our 60s piece, and here's our 70s piece. And then next week, we'll talk about their 80s piece. And it's like, maybe, maybe... Put them a little bit closer together. Just hear me out there. So I'm glad to hear that the timeline of the X-Men is just as confusing to someone who likes the X-Men as it is to me who enjoys the X-Men but is not a huge fan of the X-Men. I don't understand how any of it works and it's reassuring to know that you don't either. I somewhat understand it. Um, the X-Men have a very, very tight-knit relationship with time travel. And that is it. Because I can't come up with another team that has, like, four different time-displaced members on it at any one point in time. It's a little excessive. It's, it's very excessive. Like, in the comics, you've got Bishop. Like I said, he's from the future. You've got Rachel Summers, who makes the jump. It's not clear if she's the same Rachel Summers from this particular one. I, I think it's supposed to be, but they are also supposed to have ended this timeline, but it doesn't really matter. Anyway, you've got, um, up until recently, you had the five original X-Men running around doing stuff. You've got Cable, who was born in our time, sent to the future, raised... So that he his uh, T.O. virus wouldn't kill him. And then he, as an old man, he is sent back to our present to be an X-Man. It's interesting. Um, but this this film was not a bad time at all. No. It, it has all the right story beats. It was good. 
we've been to darker corners, that's for sure. And if my couple of gripes are some inconsistencies in the power scaling and the general trope of X-Men films to get it wrong in reference to events that have happened within their own universe in the past, or in the future, as it, the case may be, um, you know, not bad. And, you know, I, I think it told a compelling story regardless of our personal gripes on Wolverine, and it worked for what they had and what direction they needed to go, I think, and it did give us an end credit scene leading up into our next film that we'll be covering. Yeah, you notice how we were all saying that this was a real bright spot and it, and we had a lot of goodwill? Yeah, that's about to be just tossed out a fifth story window, or 50th, take your pick, I guess, really, because we get to talk about X-Men Apocalypse next week. Buckle up, guys. We're gonna have words. Some of them might not be arable. But on that note, thank you all and have a wonderful night. Night, everyone. As we all know, when it comes to making a movie, there are a lot of people working behind the scenes to make that movie magic happen. And it is no different when making a podcast. Welcome to the credit section of the MCU Lorecast. Captain Shanko and I would like to personally thank the following for their incredibly hard work and faith in us to get this podcast rolling. Tom, the head of the Robots Radio Network, for hosting and mentoring. In 7 Legend of the Mass Effect Lorecast for inspiration. Genesis and Vervada of the Two Girls One Ship podcast for introducing us. Let's Not, a fellow tabletop gamer and friend for the amazing artwork. Pipe Men, a veteran and friend for the outstanding music. Our significant others for believing in and supporting us through this. And you, our fans, without whom this would be a vanity project. Let us know how we're doing by leaving us a review on Apple or a rating on Spotify. And to quote Stan the Man, enough said. How well do you know your video game lovers? Have you ever wondered how your video game bays stack up against all the other delectable digital dates? I'm Genesis, the girl whose motto in life is love, laugh, tequila. And on Two Girls, One Ship, we analyze, rate, and review all that the world of video game romances has to offer. And I'm Vervada, the hopeless romantic cat lady and lifelong gamer. But you should know that our podcast centers on character and romance analysis and doesn't shy away from exploring the fun of physical connection. Or from the deep emotional connections built between two characters, using specific in-game dialogue and the overall narrative journey. So join the two girls, one ship, shipsters, and remember... Beauty is in the eye of the controller.